0: This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. When you choose Baxter for your CRRT program, you're not only choosing true patient-focused treatment with industry-leading CRRT technology, you're also selecting a partner dedicated to optimizing your clinical success in treating patients with acute kidney injury. Our commitment to you starts with a program individualized to your facility's needs and provides complete support every step of the way. For more information, visit us at www.RenoAcute.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Enfield. The decision to start renal replacement therapy can be a challenging one in the ICU. Today, I will be speaking with Michael Conner, MD, on the topic of when to start renal replacement therapy. Dr. Conner is an Associate Professor of Critical Care Medicine and Nephrology at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Before we start, do you have any disclosures you'd like to report? Uh No. um I'm always interested to know from the people who come on to this podcast, uh, what got them into critical care and specifically for you, uh, nephrology critical care, what was the impetus there? And, and what was the path that got
2: you on this, uh, this topic? Well, first, Kyle and SCCM, let me thank you for the invitation to be part of this podcast uh, program. I look forward to our discussion today uh, and sharing my thoughts on, on these topics. Um, to answer your question, I was interested in critical care very early on in medical school through rotations in the ICU and found it really enjoyable. Uh, I did a med residency originally thinking I wanted to do a pediatric critical care, but then was ultimately, uh, very excited by nephrology and the combination of, uh, nephrology and critical care in the adult arena with regards to AKI and fluid management in the ICU and acid base and electrolyte disorders. So that's why I, uh, jumped into this field, and I couldn't be happier with the decisions I made. Uh, Nephrology is a fantastic specialty to have uh, uh, when you're working in the ICU, uh, because it's uh, commonly an issue that we are dealing with uh, in these patients.
1: I know that it's always a difficult decision of when we start renal replacement therapy in the critically ill patient. What are the background studies that the audience should be aware of when they're thinking about these decisions?
2: Great question. So, first of all, it's important I think that the audience remembers that AKI incidence is really quite high in the critically ill patient populations. The AKI EPI study from 2015 uh, continued to confirm this in the modern era, where about 50 to 60 percent of all ICU admissions experience some level of acute kidney injury, with um, with the majority of those having rather advanced AKI, and about anywhere from 12 to 15% of patients in the ICU end up requiring dialysis during their time in the ICU. So it's a problem that we are, uh, that we uh, have to address with a lot of our patients um, every day, as you and the audience is well aware. And unfortunately we continue to have trouble really understanding when we're supposed to start dialysis. Um, As you know, We all were taught these life-threatening indications, right? For acute hyperkalemia or very severe acidemia, um, severe life-threatening fluid overload status, uremia, um, or obvious uremic encephalopathy. But these are, um, you know, not set in stone. And what what number of potassium you start dialysis, and what number of potassium I start dialysis, or for pH uh, level you know, remains really, uh, very variable from person to person. So, you know, th- there have been a lot of attempts over the course of the last 20 years to try to better define when we should start dialysis. And historically, the studies have not shown really any difference, uh, in terms of the tested strategies. And a lot of these historical studies, um, were probably not designed, um, in the, uh, most, um, appropriate fashion to sort of test the questions that we are really questioned with in the ICU all the time. For example, the historical studies looked at BUN levels. Do we start at a BUN level of 80 versus a BUN level of 150, for example? But I think most of us in the ICU can agree that it's, it's very rare that we, ever, um, that we ever make a decision to start dialysis on the basis of a BUN level. We usually make these decisions based on other factors that are uh, really uh, complicating the care of the patient, such as fluid balance or severe acidemia uh, or other sorts of issues. And we also know that while AKI is a big risk factor for mortality in the ICU, it, it seems from some studies that have looked at this more recently that it's not the presence of AKI, but rather the the complications associated with AKI that really or what drives the death. So these complications being fluid retention, hyperkalemia, metabolic acidosis, as well as a few others. And if you control for those factors, the presence of azotemia and AKI does not seem to drastically have significant impacts on mortality in the critically ill patients. So as a result, people went back to the drawing board and have uh, attempted to try to redesign some studies. And there's been a handful of newer studies published over the course of the last few years that have uh, attempted to take a slightly different approach to addressing this question. And can you describe some of those studies for us? Sure. There's, it's important to realize that um, there have been three published studies, and I'll mention all three of them. Um, and, and then one very large study that is ongoing Uh, that have taken these different approaches. Um, And so I will quickly summarize, if that's okay, these three trials, and I'll list their acronym names uh, and quickly sort of say where they're located and where the audience can find them. Is that okay? That would be great. Perfect. So in 2016, we had two trials published, the Akiki trial in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Elaine trial in JAMA. Uh, These two trials uh, took patients who had – acute kidney injury and randomize them to early versus a delayed approach to dialysis. And um, all these patients had to have uh, established KDGO criteria for acute kidney injury. And then they had to be sufficiently critically ill. So they had to have evidence of ATN uh, as opposed to a pre-renal azotemia they had to be on either mechanical ventilators or catecholamine infusions there's slightly different enrollment criteria in both trials but basically they're the same in terms of the type of patients that were in, 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 that were intended to enroll in the study and in both studies once patients met the inclusion criteria they were randomized into an early versus delayed approach the early approach being to start dialysis as soon as possible within 6 or 12 hours depending on the study Uh, as well as uh, the delayed approach, which was waiting to meet a certain benchmark prior to starting dialysis. And in both studies, those benchmarks had to do with uh, severe uh, complications associated with AKI, such as severe oliguria or anuria that went on for more than three days, uh, BUN levels um, greater than, say, 110 Um, serum potassium levels greater than 6, or EKG changes, pHs that were sufficiently low, or symptomatic volume overload with pulmonary edema. Um, And short of reaching those criteria, the patients were told to wait uh, uh, and not start dialysis. Um, A third trial was published um, just in the last um, year called the IDEAL ICU trial. And again, this trial took a similar approach of an early versus late approach. And again, um, the patients were um, randomized uh, once they reached a certain level of of AKI, and then they either had dialysis immediately or had to wait at least 48 hours um, before they reached some emergency dialysis criteria. The the interesting thing is, is that these three trials have shown divergent results, which has made... The, um, the questions uh, difficult to answer. The AKIKI and the IDEAL ICU trials show no difference in uh, mortality despite the early versus the delayed strategy. And both trials showed that in the delayed strategy, a sufficient, uh, an important number of patients actually did not require dialysis at any point either because they died for other reasons before dialysis was indicated or because they um, uh, had a spontaneous recovery of renal function and therefore didn't require dialysis. And so the challenge here is that how do we compare patients? uh, How do we compare two groups when not everyone in both groups got the strategy? and how to, or got the endpoint in question, which was dialysis, and are we exposing patients to some risk with uh, applying early dialysis when 40 to 50 percent of the patients, depending on the study that were in the delayed arm, actually recovered without needing any dialysis or died without reaching the indication for dialysis. Does that make sense?
1: It makes a lot of sense, and you know it makes me think about so many other critical care trials that have had divergent response between trial to trial it makes our makes our career both exciting and, and challenging um, You said there 's an ongoing trial right now that 's enrolling. Do you think that will help at all with answering this question
2: well i don 't know but it 's important to 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 move back one step before we talk about the ongoing trial and just mention that I mentioned the Akiki and the ideal ICU trials as showing no difference, but the Elaine trial, um, which randomized patients to early versus late and was published in 2016, um, did show a striking improvement in survival with the early group doing better. So, the challenge here is how do we sort of put all this together? Uh, Um, When one trial is showing a 20% absolute risk reduction for death uh, at 90 days with an early application of dialysis and two other trials um, showing uh, no difference with an early versus late approach.
1: Yeah, that does put us in a a sticky spot, doesn't it?
2: Right. And the ongoing trial, which is the largest multi-center trial being done around the world called the START-ACI trial. Is taking a similar approach to these patients with an accelerated or early dialysis versus a usual dialysis or delayed dialysis approach um, and is ongoing with enrollment. Enrollment pace has been good and hopefully we will get some results from this group um, in the next year or so. Um, I don't know, however, if it's going to drastically alter the landscape with this. because ultimately, I think some of these questions about when to start dialysis really are hard to package into, a, um, into a, a, a research protocol, because if you think about your own clinical practice and when you think dialysis might be indicated, there are a lot of factors that you take into account when you uh, consider all of these. You consider the patient's current primary problems. You consider the level of kidney function. You weigh the um, demands on the kidney versus the kidney's capacity to, uh, to uh, handle those demands. You weigh how much fluid you're giving every day and whether or not the patient's able to either spontaneously or with diuretics make enough urine to account for that. You are, you're weighing where they are on their hemodynamic status There's a lot of factors that you're considering, all the while trying to understand what is this patient's trajectory? Do they have an opportunity for survival? Is dialysis going to modify their opportunity survival? If dialysis isn't going to change anything, should we even offer it? So there's lots of things that we're considering as intensivists and nephrologists in this field. And uh, and when we're pressed with these decisions, and I'm not sure that it's very easy to design research protocols that account for all of that.
1: Yeah, I think that we suffer from that in the ARDS area as well as sepsis, where it's hard to package every clinical decision into a randomized controlled trial. So, currently in your own practice, when you're thinking about these things, and thinking all those things, are there some indications that really sort of steer you toward, towards earlier renal replacement therapy and thinking that it could be beneficial to the patient?
2: Yeah. So, let me first say that on the basis of all of these studies and prior studies, um, I, I believe strongly that isolated azotemia in the absence of, you know, clearly symptomatic uremia. Um, and no other indication for dialysis does not, should not in any way push me to start dialysis. So if a patient's BUN is 150, they're awake, they're talking to me, I don't hear a rub, they're making urine, um, they're not fluid, or they're not making urine, but they're not fluid overloaded, uh, their acid-base status, their potassium's okay, I don't think there's a real rush to start dialysis in that situation. And a lot of those patients may recover on their own, and if they do, then we've avoided the risks associated with dialysis, which are not inconsequential, but primarily have to do with the central line that we are using. But uh, if they don't, then eventually we can start dialysis. And the studies have shown, I think, quite convincingly that starting early versus late on a BUN level doesn't really make any difference. So on that front, I don't really tend to really pay too close attention to what is going on with regards to that. I tend to focus a lot more of my energy on trying to understand fluid balance and acid-base trajectory. Um, I don't tend to run into too many situations where patients develop symptomatic hyperkalemia, although we're obviously keeping a close eye on that as we go every day. Um, as I'm sure you're well aware of, Kyle, the literature is pretty strong at this point that fluid overload is not just associated with bad outcomes, but is likely causative of bad outcomes by impairing brain, heart, liver, kidney, lung function. Um, and that um, return to euvolemia and de-resuscitation is an important part of our practice in the ICU. And so... Um, I would say that far and away the most common reason I end up starting dialysis has to do with the fluid balance uh, decisions with acid-base disorders being shortly there, you know, shortly behind that. Um, in your field with ARDS, I'm hugely uh, in agreement with low tidal volume ventilations and permissive hypercapnia and lung protective strategies But oftentimes, if we're accumulating a little bit of metabolic acids, for example, in AKI, it becomes increasingly difficult to tolerate mild amounts or moderate amounts of of, uh, hypercarbia. And so that is another driving factor that we sometimes need to start dialysis for, is to control metabolic acids in order to allow us to be more lung protective uh, and uh, appropriate for ARDS management.
1: Yeah, I think that... The thing that I've seen definitely, particularly in the last few years with working in our unit is uh, the, the increasing attention that we put on fluid balance as more and more studies have shown that the over accumulation of fluid is harmful to the patients in, in so many ways. Uh, and yet sometimes it just feels like we're we're beating our heads to uh, try to get the, the volume off of them. Uh, but at the same time, there is that risk of putting in the central line to do dialysis and, and balancing all those risks. Are there other indications that you think of where, that would push you or conditions that would push you to earlier dialysis in a patient?
2: Well, you know, I tend to look at the overall trajectory of the patient. Um, you know, I think the KDIGO global criteria for uh, in a global consensus guidelines, if in in AKI, suggest that we should not only start dialysis emergently for life-threatening problems in fluid electrolytes or acid-based disorders, but they also state that we need to consider the broader clinical context and the presence of conditions that can be modified by dialysis um, and sort of trends over time. So one thing that um, has been shown fairly recently over the course of the last couple of years to have a lot of predictive power is how a patient responds to a diuretic challenge. So if we do a formalized furosemide stress test that was first um, uh, coined by uh, Mink Chala and uh, Jay Coiner in, in the literature, if a patient doesn't respond to Lasix, it does, it not only predicts advanced AKI, but increasingly we have studies that show that it really discriminates quite, quite well patients who will ultimately require dialysis from those who won't. Um, So I tend to very early in the process, once I've sort of left the resuscitation phase of critical illness and I'm in the more maintenance or stabilization phase of critical illness, I tend to start using um, diuretics quite early uh, to help me understand how is the kidney responding to uh, challenges. And if we have AKI and I have a patient who's not responding to Lasix, then I tend to start dialysis fairly early in that situation. Now, admittedly, that might be a little bit ahead of where the literature is at this point, Um, but that's my practice, and I certainly, that practice is shared by a lot of other um, of my colleagues that are, you know, uh, experts in this field, Um, and it's it's a strategy that is also supported by the Acute Dialysis Quality Initiative Consensus Guideline Group, whereby if the renal demands far outseed the renal capacity, then dialysis is likely indicated to sort of fill that gap. And so if you have a lot of fluid demands and the kidney's capacity to excrete that volume um, is not responsive to diuretics, then there's no real need to wait to accumulate more volume before we end up uh, initiating dialysis. That's a great
1: strategy. If there were three things for the non-nephrology critical care doctor that you wish they would take away from thinking about renal replacement therapy, what what would those be?
2: Uh, That's a great question. So I think, first of all, it's important that we consider dialysis and its role within the broader clinical context of life support therapy. By that, I mean we shouldn't necessarily think that all patients need to have dialysis before they die. Um, and secondly, we need to understand what do we hope that dialysis is going to accomplish, um, and what is our goal for as as we initiate therapy and as we go day to day with dialysis, which with which with which whatever modality you are going to use, be it intermittent, prolonged intermittent, or sled, or a continuous approach. What is our goal for therapy on each individual day? and make sure that the intensivist team and your nephrologist team agree as to what the goal is. This is really important because without having a goal in mind, then it's not, we can't tailor therapy and we can't work with our colleagues to try to ensure that we're reaching that goal. The second thing I would say is that when we are looking at these decisions about the timing of dialysis, We should not waste a lot of energy arguing about whether we start dialysis at a given number or here or there, because we don't have really any studies that can tell any one of us that we're doing anything right or wrong in this capacity. The decisions to start dialysis really should be based on what are the clinical needs of the patients? Can I address those clinical needs with dialysis? And, um, And if we address those needs, will something in the patient get better? And if the answer to all of those questions is yes, and we feel that the benefit of dialysis outweighs the risks of dialysis, then it's appropriate to start, regardless of whether or not it's only been a day and the BUN is 50, or it's been a couple of days and the BUN is 70. Uh, The third thing with regards to the sort of the general principles is that We need to recognize that dialysis in and of itself is not benign, and while we're doing dialysis, if we're going to be applying a a treatment or a procedure, we need to make sure that we are working very hard to accomplish the goals that we want to accomplish with dialysis and working to minimize the risks and complications associated with dialysis. And the ones that I think the general ICU teams need to be very mindful of every day are the risks associated with with underdosing of medications, especially on continuous renal replacement therapy, the risks of um, electrolyte disorders related to CRT, such as hypophosphatemia, and the risks associated and the the negative effects that CRT and frequent dialysis have on nutrition support, and that we need to factor in when we're using dialysis for an extended period of time, that we have to account for the nutrition requirements of the patient that will be different because they're on dialysis. And that's beyond the scope of the talk today, but I'm happy to share information with listeners if they contact me regarding that issue. Michael, thank
1: you. That was great advice for all of us and uh, wonderful information to share. I want to thank the listeners for listening to another edition of iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Enfield.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. When you choose Baxter for your CRRT program, you're not only choosing true patient-focused treatment with industry-leading CRRT technology, you're also selecting a partner dedicated to optimizing your clinical success in treating patients with acute kidney injury. Our commitment to you starts with a program individualized to your facility's needs and provides complete support every step of the way. For more information, visit us at www.renalacute.com. Kyle Enfield, M.D. Kyle Enfield, M.D., is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the assistant hospital epidemiologist there, and he remains the co-medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of health care-associated conditions, including multi-drug-resistant organisms acquisition and health care-associated infections. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.